and welcome to Geeks with Shields, your home for all things good and nerdy in this The Darkest Timeline. I'm Lord Commander Ulrich, and with me as always is... His shield brother, Axel Wright. Alright, just a quick bit of housekeeping. I seem to have contracted Nurgle's Rot this week, so <laughs> if I sound a bit off, that is why. The plague. So, the plague. Uh, so, Axel, you excited for Ready Player One? Uh, excited? I don't know if that's the right word. I'm interested, certainly. Yeah, I'll say I'm in the same boat. I haven't read the book. I know the concept. It's on my to-read list. And... I have read the book, and I love the book, even though yeah, I acknowledge yeah. that it's not actually a good book. So <laughs> I have it because you suggested it to me. Well, I do think you'll like it, but it's one of those things where like, I like it while recognizing that it has w a lot of problems. So. Yeah, which... I mean, just on the trailer, and I know I've already made enemies in multiple communities, Batman hmm. fans, Game of Thrones fans, Dark Souls fans, so let's make some more. I don't like the trailer. The second, the first trailer is good. The second trailer, not so much. It feels incredibly pandering. Well, see, that the makes funny thing about sense. That, well, the funny thing about that is that the book is pandering. Like, part of what's really Ooh. enjoyable about the book is that the book is a love letter to 80s culture in general whether you lived in it because I, like i didn't grow up in the 80s but i have a, a affinity for a lot of things from the 80s like old school arcade machines or, or a lot of the movies from the 80s even a lot of television from the 80s and the the book okay so so ready player one you gotta understand is uh, like attacking your enjoyment essentially or uh, attack is the wrong word it is it is enjoyable on a few different fronts but its primary thrust is pure nostalgia like there's a lot of things that we've watched that you like for nostalgia but the basic conceit that the uh that the movie i don't think is gonna be able to do to the same degree is that the oasis the um the virtual reality world right was created by a guy who grew up in the 80s and he loved 80s culture he was obsessed with it he was a recluse he was not very social and when he died his will was a, a video, like a three-minute-long video, that basically said, I made an Easter egg that's also a game inside the Oasis based on my enjoyment of you know, the things I was into. I'm not sure if, an, if it's uh, even winnable, but anyone who can win it gets the, gets the Oasis. They get all of his money and the key to running the entire virtual reality. But the game is seeped entirely in 80s culture. Things like the uh, literally one of the challenges of the game within the game is playing joust against a D&D first edition lich. So now see, that's the I can deal with that and that's fine and I think you hit on two topics there that really kind of bug me about the trailer. One, it doesn't explain very well what the movie is about if you don't already know what it's about. Yes, agreed. And two, what you just described, that's good. That's like, here's this thing, here's a little bit of background on this thing, isn't this good, where the trailer is like, hey, look, we have all these things you like, don't you love us now? And well, that's, see, that's what I mean when I say pandering, is it yeah. really feels aggressively like, we've got Overwatch, you like Overwatch, right? Okay, um, we've got a DeLorean, you like DeLoreans, right? No, shit. Uh, how about G.I. Joe, you like G.I. Joes? Iron Giant, what do you like? We'll put it in this trailer, it feels so... What's funny to me about gimmicky. that is that if it's the things that are 80s, like the DeLorean, the DeLorean is an important part of the book. Like everyone drives a DeLorean because so DeLoreans were cool in the eighties, and that <laughs> makes sense. Well, because they call it the Hunt, right? That's what yeah. the the game within the game is called, just the Hunt. Or uh, and people who who actually hunt are called egg hunters or gunters for short, because you're mm -hmm. hunting for an Easter egg. 
right? But since the prize is basically control over the most important technology in the world, as well as one of the largest fortunes in the world, you know, everyone gets involved in it. There are so many of them that 80s culture becomes the culture. And even people who aren't gunters then become 80s cultures. One of those things where it's like cyclical, you know, fads, but for yeah. the entirety of the 80s. And so everyone drives a DeLorean, right? Everyone listens to Rush, which is why having Rush be yeah. in the first trailer was so perfect for me. Because I'm like, yeah, Rush is an important part of the hunt. But Overwatch and Iron Giant, as much as I love seeing Iron Giant in that first trailer, which was neat, like, that to me is just proof that they couldn't get rights to every 80s thing that the book which does. Which I'm is okay with. I think it's giving it a more of a cross generational appeal. And what it comes down to is if they do it right, because there is a big difference between pandering, I think, and nostalgia. And if these background characters have a significant moment or they actually serve a purpose being there, that's to service your nostalgia. But if it's just like it is in the trailer, they throw all these things on screen to grab as many demographics as, demographics as possible, that's cheap pandering. And well, I don't here, like here's what I would say. What I would want to see from the movie is it's kind of almost the reverse a little bit of what you just said. Like, So Tracer is there in, uh, in the second trailer, right? And you know what? If we're living in a post-Overwatch world where Overwatch basically dominated, um, you know, the games industry to the point where it made loot crates and everything. Uh, I understand that if you have a fictional scenario where people can have avatars of whatever they want, there are going to pe be people who just have avatars of fictional characters. I did that for a while in high school uh, with various fictional characters. Oh, but, I remember. Yeah, but since the thrust of the story is supposed to be about this guy specifically who was into the 80s. And yeah, there is more to the book. The book has a lot to say about uh, the nature of corporate culture and, and capitalism, the power of corporations and the uh, addiction, uh, not addiction, like the compulsion that video games can engender and how people can get lose their identity and other identities. Which all that's all there too. sounds great and topical for the times. Yeah, so all the, all that's there, but like that's stuff for the more, for lack of a better term, and I hate using this because it shows my pretension again, but that's there for the more quote-unquote intelligent reader. The You can miss all of that and still just love all the 80s references. At one point, I was reading it, and Mechagodzilla showed up. Oh, I was just Mechagodzilla! Like, my, my brain just like exploded and like, yes! So, because Mechagodzilla was awesome. Not as yeah, cool as so, Space Godzilla. Space Godzilla was the bomb. But. I love Space Godzilla. I'm going to have to disagree with you, but this because Mecha Godzilla. Anyway, we'll talk about that another time. I can yeah, do well, a we, whole we, episode we, on Kaiju, man. We so. will do an episode on Godzilla because we are 90s kids. We grew <laughs> up on Godzilla. We grew up on Kaiju movies. Anyway, so for me, any character or or reference that is like a driving thrust of the narrative should be like solidified in in that idea of the hunt of 80s culture whereas the other things like iron giant which is awesome i love the iron giant movie i love seeing iron giant in this but that stuff should be the dressing i would call it like to make this virtual reality feel lived in feel like a real exactly. thing exactly and on the one hand is steven spielberg steven spielberg does not make bad movies he makes okay movies at worst but he doesn't make bad movies and i think it really is going to be a tightrope adaptation. What do you take from the source and what do you leave behind? How do you update it? How do you stay true? It's true really going to be, and that's why I wanted to talk about this, 
is it's really going to be an interesting movie because one, a lot of people like it. I mean, it's, I know it's a huge thing. And two, it may be one of the most difficult ones to adapt, I think, because it's set in a decade that's very popular now with a concept that's very popular now. But at the same time, you have to do it without making it already feel dated on arrival. <laughs> Correct. Well, that's why I feel like, I mean, the 80s for me is one of those decades, I think more than any other decade except maybe the 60s, that is defined. Like there is an image, a sound, a feeling that is so purely 80s, which I think is why it's a good choice for, for that kind of well, story. Yeah, and that's because the 80s didn't die till 96. <laughs> True enough. I do, I do want to I mean, say, oh, go ahead. If you grew up in the 90s, know what i'm talking about there was 90s was just a cultural dumping ground of everything and it was probably made for an awesome childhood we had transformers and we had beast wars <laughs> that is both new and old together um, yes god that was a great show and again i love pegatron so much yes my yes queen. stop calling me my queen anyway um uh but i want to say before we get off the topic of ready player one this what i'm about to say is a nitpick it is totally nitpick uh, because if the actor who's playing the main character, whose name is Wally, um, Wally Watts, it, it's actually a big thing. His dad named him with the WW because that's what superhero names are like. Yeah. Anyway, but Wally Watts, the actor playing him, I don't know him and maybe he'll do excellently. I don't know. I'm not going to judge him until I see it, but yeah. on a purely aesthetic level, I hate that he is very obviously a Hollywood young adult actor because Wally yeah. in the book, yeah, in the book, because it's a power fantasy, right? It, he's the ultimate okay. gamer. He's supposed he's described as being, you know, acne and overweight. And in the middle of the book, he, he gets into shape and like becomes more of a conventional hero. You get to, there's a whole like chapter about what he has to go through in order to get a better body. But part of that is the idea of saying, Hey, you can do this too. You people who identify with Wally at the beginning of the book can become Wally at the end of the book. And so losing that by casting an actor like that is just, I don't know, it, it kind of hurts me a little bit. Again, I'm not saying it'll actually affect his performance in the movie. And at the end, it's not gonna really matter, but that bugs me. Yeah, but it's one of those things. There's no way it was ever going to make it to the final cut. That's just not going to happen. I can still hope. I, I think anything is possible, but very unlikely. Yeah, Hollywood has uh, major issues with you know physical standards. But another topic for another time. So I mean, that happens as, to books a lot. So yeah, as today's uh, title suggests, we will be talking about some of our favorite books that were made into god-awful movies as well as some of those that we would love to see adapted despite the fact we've been burned repeatedly and then we're going to talk briefly about why this is such a hard medium to translate so axel why don't you start us off with one of your choices you know i would love to but since i spent like 10 minutes going off about ready player one why don't you start us off oh okay you're gonna flip the way back to me all right i'm gonna talk about one of my all-time favorite books i picked up at random on the library at the library and that was world war z it's a zombie um, war, right? Yeah, Tales of the Zombie War, which I am not a big fan of the whole zombie thing. I kind of got burned out on it real quick. Um, I grew up watching the Romero films. I had a healthy understanding. <laughs> but it, zombies were never really my thing. They just felt overplayed real quick. I'll let you know that the only thing I know about World War Z is that one of the actors who plays Doctor Who is in it as a doctor for the World Health Organization. That's all I know about that movie. <laughs> so. I didn't know that. 
But anyways, no, I picked this uh, book up at random while walking down an aisle in the library, and I don't remember what it was that caught my eye, but I'm like, ah, okay, that seems like it's interesting. And it was one of those rare books that the minute I started reading it, I was immediately pulled in. And, you know, I think I read the thing in like the course of three days, which I, I'm uh, curious. My then. adult life is tricky. <laughs> I'm curious then because so zombies by your own lead into this topic, it's a very old movie trope specifically. I mean, Night of the Living Dead is considered to be like you revolutionary for what yes. it did, even if, even if Dawn of the Living Dead was better as a movie but we don't need to get into that so i don't know much about zombie books i know that zombies in general function as like a a mechanism to allow uh movie makers to actually examine how people work under pressure while having a you know kind of a faceless entity to deal with so it says i know nothing about world war z what zombie movie would you most liken it to that's the thing I can't really think of a zombie movie that works the same. I mean, it takes elements from all of them because the first big defining feature of this book is it's a collection of short stories told from multiple points of view from around the world. So kind of like a third of American gods. (laughs) Yes. And it's told chronologically, but through a backwards lens because the whole of the central plot is a doctor from the World Health Organization is going around collecting first-hand accounts of people's experiences during the zombie war. Mm-hmm. And it starts in the beginning when the first outbreak, and then it goes from there, all the while talking about, and this is what's probably the best part of it, is how the world is affected by this plague in the various elements, economically, socially, religiously. How do different countries deal with this? Hence the world. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think one of the biggest or rather scariest things, is before I read this book, I was of the mind that, you know, if there were a zombie apocalypse, it would be fine. The government would take care of it. I have enough faith in them not to totally screw us over. But this book has a whole chapter dedicated to exactly how the government screwed people over. And it's totally believable. They hid it from people, they pushed a fake drug to control panic, and then everything went to hell. And each, even though the author, uh, you know, it's the same author for all the books, each story feels different because each one is a different type of story. And some of them are downright terrifying. Um, Some of them are really action-packed. It's a great book, and it's almost like a civics lesson. You know, when the world collapses because this faceless entity is here, what happens to the economy? How do people evolve? How does society change to adapt with this? And it's why I have no interest in The Walking Dead. The Walking Dead had that potential to do that story And instead, it chose to do the same plot over and over and over and over and over again. I've heard Walking Dead referred to as uh, arguing, also some zombies. Yeah, it's go to place, build society, place fails, move on again, try over. It's not going into the interesting part of, okay, this has happened. How does this affect people? Because the least interesting part of any zombie story is the zombies. I gotta side rail you for a moment, just because if Walking Dead gets brought up a topic, I gotta, I gotta put my foot. Well, let me not my foot down, but I gotta also say, as a Boondock Saints fan, I'm sitting here like I've been into Norman Reedus for years. Yeah, That's all I want to say. So again, wasted concept. And then when I heard they were making this into a movie, I got interested. I'm like, okay, this would be tricky because. You don't have a central protagonist. Don't they try to make Brad Pitt into the central protagonist or something? Yes. And what the movie, and then I'll explain what the movie, I guess, pretty friendly on the movie is Brad Pitt is a 
brilliant doctor for the World Health Organization, because of course he is. All World Health Organization doctors look like Brad Pitt, don't you know? Mm. Well, in all fairness, Brad Pitt is a great character actor stuck in a leading man's body. Yeah, and he essentially goes, and the zombie about break breaks, and he goes to a place, and he helps some people, and then bad stuff happens, and then he goes to the next place, helps some people, bad stuff happens. (laughs) Is, and it repeats all the way through till we get to the end. There is nothing from the book except they took, hmm, well, there's a doctor from the World Health Organization that's, you know, the main character. Let's make that our movie. Also extremely terrible CG zombies. Oh, God, yeah. And it's like, and let's do fast zombies. There's nothing against fast or slow zombies. But again, zombies are the least interesting part of your movie. Mm-hmm. And even the ending, because the ending of the book was, you know, humanity had was essentially losing. And they came together and said, okay, we're not going to take this anymore. And they took, you know, matters into their own hands, as well as taking some really questionable methods. Methods? Uh, yeah, like, and it raises ethical questions. Like, one of the big things that they do was they would herd a group of their sick and elderly into the middle of an open area, wait for the zombies to come, and then surround the zombies and shoot them. Wow, that's pretty dark. Yeah, when it, and the book raises questions like, was this the right thing to do? Also yes. entirely inefficient to me, but whatever. <laughs> well, they had, and you know, and it talks about that. they're fighting on the back foot. So right. it raises the questions, what do you do in these situations? Um, and it talks about how people were forced to, you know, deal with these choices. Um, and it asks questions like that. The movie ends with, wait a second, if we can get the zombies sick, then the zombies will die. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, that's, that's hilarious. This was such a fascinating book. One of the big ongoing plot elements is how when Russia fell, it degraded back into a theocracy run by militant chaplains. I mean, there's a great... That alone is fascinating. Um, Israel becomes a walled city. Ah, I'm not touching that one. Yeah, well, different times, it was a different thing. (laughs) There are so many, you know, really interesting things. Um, Islands are essentially overrun with zombies because they walk out of the ocean. Oh. So there are whole islands that just, you know, they can't do anything about. Uh, Poor Hawaii. Yeah. France has this great story about fighting zombies in the catacombs. Mm, that's terrifying. Great idea. Yeah. That'd be a there good are so many great ideas, and this should it's not have been a movie. Skull walls coming to life. Yeah, this should not have been a movie. This should have been a TV show. At the very least. And now it's getting a sequel, and I just... Oh. <laughs> so you, you could say, I mean, it sounds like what you're telling me is that they took a book that was largely about uh, telling small not barely connected uh, human stories and instead turn it into let's follow this handsome guy as he journeys around and makes people's lives better. It was a Hollywood blockbuster cookie cut zombie film. Huh. Well, I mean at the, we, we said before that the worst thing a movie could be is boring. So I yeah. guess in a way you already have it up on me because the movie I want to talk about was so bad. It spawned some of the best like uh, criticism videos on the internet, which is, Battlefield Earth. Now, uh, the book uh, written by Elrond Hubbard. I got. I got to preface by saying. Yeah, let's go ahead that, and put this one out here. That nothing I say here, and I, I mean nothing, is any way an endorsement or an indictment or has anything to do 
with any other L. Ron Hubbard writing or any other movement or collection of people that may have spawned from said writing. <laughs> Geeks with Shields has no connection in any way, shape, or form of Scientology. Correct. I but I did read Battlefield Earth when I was in high school, and I actually really enjoyed it. It's a well, that title really alone's grabbing. It's like, ooh, okay, that sounds like something good. Plus, it's got a, <laughs> the cover is so very old school, like sci-fi adventure. It's you know this burly guy with like no shirt on, holding a rifle, standing like uh, on a the barbarian. It's very Conan the Barbarian, yeah. And you can see like you know space stuff happening in the background, but the sky's like all kind of green. The whole book's very green. It's it's a very long book. It's like eleven hundred pages long or something. Yeah, I know. Is... I've seen it. Things a coffee table book if ever there was. Yeah. Now the book itself, I'm I'm gonna say, is both like simple and complicated. And oddly enough, because basically it's split into two halves, right? Yeah. The first half is actually extremely simple. The first half is the uh, cyclos who are the you know aliens who in the book are described kind of like giant purple gorilla creatures uh that translate to uh dreadlocks uh we'll get to what the movie did in a second okay because give... i'm curious how purple gorillas turn into that weirdness uh, well really i could give the explanation is that john travolta wanted his face to be on screen but uh... well that's a hollywood thing of itself we can discuss another time but go on purple anyway, gorillas so and now they're on Earth because so the cyclos are like they're into gold. Like gold is super valuable in space, just like it is here. But oh, and here's the thing: the movie never explains this, and because of that, I've watched tons of videos by people who I find really funny uh, make fun of this in the movie. But the the atmosphere that the cyclos breathe, which they call breathe gas, yeah, dumb name. Don't worry about it. Um, but they call it breathe gas. It has a violent reaction to radiation that comes from uranium, specifically uranium. See, in the movie, they don't explain that at all. And for some reason, a uh, a nuclear bomb, you know, blows up a planet. Uh, yeah, and, I and suddenly, that. yeah, and suddenly every critic is like, so fire their their gas just or their atmosphere just ignites. And how come their planet doesn't ignite when someone lights a cigarette or and then even if they hear like radiation, it's like, oh, how come a microwave is? No, it's specifically uranium radiation. It's why they uh, have like special suits to try to you know mine up gold that's next to uranium deposits, and their planet doesn't have uranium on it. Which, okay, physics and science speaking, that's not really uh, possible. It's not the right word. It's not really likely because uranium is a, a pretty base element. It's not like plutonium that you got to refine. Uranium yeah. exists in space, but still, that's like acceptable for me. Anyway, so so the main cyclo he finds humans who have been they're basically cavemen, and he uses a special device to teach them how to operate mining equipment and you know have them go get the gold for him so that. You know, he can save money, not to hire people. He's basically a bureaucrat. In a lot of ways, the book itself is a huge uh, con condemnation of bureaucracy while an acknowledgement that it's just required. And I'll get to why in a second. So obviously, the humans are like, well, we'll fight back. And they, you know, find like old fighter jets and they use uh, essentially the small number of cycles on the planet. They're lack of uh, concern about the humans to their advantage to sneak at them and their inferior technology wins because you know tricks all that stuff and they fight it's, a guerrilla war yeah, yes exactly it's very basic and the movie yeah. touches on all that but 
the the first big problems it makes is one the main character in the book is supposed to be the he's not a good character and by good i i literally mean he's not a well-developed character he's supposed to be a pulp hero yeah that is his thing right just the best of every possible uh yeah personality exactly um like the the fun you get out of reading is the same fun you get out of reading old pulp stories it's just what it is so the guy they cast not only if you're going to cast a character like that, you need someone with an insane amount of charisma, someone who you just like seeing on screen regardless. You can understand why people would get behind this guy and go fight the giant purple monkey people. Exactly. You need like a Charlton Heston who would have been perfect for this role. Oh, Charlton Heston would have been perfect in that role. Yeah, but the guy they got is tiny, like scrawny dude. I don't know. And he's forgettable. Exactly. I don't even remember who he was. But anyway, so already – Big mistake. Second mistake, as you pointed out, making the aliens not alien enough and making John Travolta ham up every scene he's in. And I like John Travolta in plenty of things, but he is just a over the top in that movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, he wasn't also, intimidating. Why, and this which... isn't anything new, but why does the entire movie have to be at a Dutch angle? Like, oh yeah, it's infuriating. No, um, I remember the first time I watched that, I thought something was wrong with my movie or something. Like, what? Why is it tilted like that? Anyway, but p- there have been so many people online to to crap all over Battlefield Earth movie. I don't feel like I have to dedicate too much time to it. I just want to dedicate yeah. some time to why the book deserved better than that. And I think because it's so in vogue to shit on anything related to that group of people that the show is not at all affiliated with, I think people might overlook you know, what is actually good about a book like this. So here's one of the most interesting things though. Uh, so they blow up planet cyclo, right. And, uh, they take back their earth and it's roughly around page 600 of the book. So almost half the book is left because all that really is kind of build up. That's all first and second act stuff. Because yeah. what you find out is that without the Cyclos there holding uh, essentially the rights to Earth, then every other alien species wants it. Ooh, so su- that sounds interesting. And so suddenly, like six different alien fleets, or not even fleets, more like you know, c- uh, groups of ships, because they're not oh, huge enough to be fleets. Sure, they all show up, and they all like. Some of them are bankers, and some of them are mercenaries, and some of them are mercenaries hired by the bankers. Uh, but they all start essentially fighting with each other over who now gets to own the Earth. So you while... just expanded your universe, which yeah. is always positive in the sci-fi. Yeah, so the humans who like thought that they had won realized that the Cyclos were actually the only thing keeping uh, between them and other species who will just basically wipe them out and just like strip mine the planet further, essentially. Not yeah, that the Cyclos were good, but... Yeah, exactly. Because now that they're, uh, but before they were just a dumb native species, so the Cyclos ignored them. But now that they've killed the Cyclos, they and declared war, or at least shown that they are a threat. They are a potential threat, exactly. So not only do these new species realize that no one has claim to the planet, but now they're like, all right, well, we want it. We're gonna have to kill these people first. So all that, which is the most interesting stuff in the book, is not in the movie at all. Now yeah. maybe. The- they planned on doing it in a sequel because, as I said, the 1,100-page book. But And they put a lot of money into that movie. But they could have at least – and not that this would have saved such a terrible movie or anything like that. They don't even reference it. They have the ending shot, right, be like uh, Travolta stuck in the cage surrounded by the gold. But you should have easily made the ending shot like all the other aliens showing up, 
And then that would have given the, you know, the hint at this is what the story is really building up to. Again, we're not save the movie, but to, to completely not acknowledge what is the, the, the third act of the book is just super frustrating. So I can understand. I mean, I didn't know anything about the book. I've tried to watch that movie on multiple occasions when I was younger because the title, Battlefield Earth, that sounds cool. It's a sci-fi. That's cool. It's got Which John again, it's, That's... it's far more accurate as Battlefield Earth once all the other aliens are using it as a battlefield, not only against the humans. Yeah, the title makes sense there. So. One big question. I mean, in the movie, we're all cavemen because we fought them and promptly lost. Is it like that in the book or – no, in the book, the idea is that human they uh, humans don't even know with the cyclos. They kill themselves with nuclear ah. fire, and they're just like uh, the uranium uh, radiation that is in a lot of places is causing them to go like sterile, and humans are slowly dying out. And so the main character like goes out on a you know a quest to try to like you know save his people, and that's when he gets picked up by the main cyclo, and he's the first to uh, get taught how to do stuff and he starts bringing in the other people also so in the movie right like any scene between travolta and the main character is completely one-sided for yeah. most of the movie it's it's travolta basically strangling him and like talking about Hamming how it up yeah which that happens in the book but there's a good portion of the book where he's learned a lot and he starts you know dialoguing with him it becomes a back and forth you see a very slow transition of power until uh the human has leverage over the main cyclo leverage is actually the key like phrase everything in battlefield earth is all about the uh, acquisition and application of leverage so again they they mention the word a few times in the movie but they don't really like seep it into everything like they do in the in the book to make this like a kind of a it's not a theme because the themes are actually a lot more complicated like i said they're a lot about uh you know the the relationship between like businesses and what they uh, that, that mostly in the third act but that really is what the book's about but leverage is a big idea like who has leverage over who how do they use leverage how do you get out of when someone has leverage over you stuff like that so so it sounds like it was another really kind of complex book with a lot of you know interesting ideas to mull over that was dumbed down and mass produced well the funny thing is the stuff that was complicated they dumbed down and the stuff that was dumbed down they tried to complicate and by that i mean the, the protagonist who's supposed to be simple pulpy charismatic not complicated and they tried to make him like relatable and like an actual person and it just actually damages what he's supposed to do as a character maybe i'm not saying you couldn't make that work i'm not a filmmaker but i feel like it kind of defeats the point of what that character is supposed to be in the book well here's the real question who could you have gotten that could have acted against travolta in that role well i wouldn't have cast travolta as that cyclo to begin with yeah but so. i thought travolta financed a chunk of it because he really wanted to see this movie made he did but if he had any uh for like a better term pride he would have put himself aside and cast i would have said hubris but so well i mean pride in the product but sure oh yeah too um like so that that kind of character i would cast a bond villain like a proper bond villain like um uh actually you know what i would cast someone like uh like sean bean actually to play that well, character. sean bean could work he can do the subtle and he dies at the end so it works <laughs> exactly so there are probably better examples but off the top of my head like that cyclo that john Travolta plays is supposed to be a bond villain 
And to an extent, I think Travolta is trying to do that, but he goes too far. And saying that someone tries to be a Bond villain and goes too far, that's saying something. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's uh, that's an example of uh, a book that I really... Now, admittedly, I haven't read it in... Let's see, I'm this age. I haven't read it in probably like six years. So, uh, And I loved it at the time. Maybe if I read it now, I would find it trite or something. But... Uh, it's it's universally accepted that the movie is terrible, and you know the book. No matter what your thoughts, like was a very successful book, and I enjoyed it when I read it. So I was super disappointed in that movie. Yeah, um, I can totally understand. I go so I far as saying back. pissed, pissed yeah. off. I, I I hate going back and reading the book you really liked when you were younger, and then finding oh wow, I liked stupid shit. Yeah, it's terrible. But it sounds like it has potential to make a good movie. I mean, there seems like there's enough there. Again, though, I would have preferred as a, a television show, a two-season television show, per, like preferably. Preferably, I can't speak. But uh, let's move on to the next one, which for me, this is a book I picked up recently. I don't remember how or why. Again, this is one of the ones I got knowing really nothing about, but someone suggested to me, I think. And I think it would make a great movie. It's called uh, so Majesty's Dragon. So this is something that isn't a movie that you want to be a movie. Yeah, I think it has the potential to be a really good movie, yes. Okay, Her Majesty's Dragon? Yes. Okay. It is set during the height of the Napoleonic War. Mm, got me already. Yeah, when a ship's captain captures a French transport and finds a dragon egg on board. Oh, so wait, is the world supposed to be... Well, actually, I've, I've, you're going to get to it. Go ahead. Yeah. Keep going. Now... This is where the book kind of transitions in. It's still the Napoleonic Wars. The only difference is in this world, they have a dragon core. I have heard about this. Yeah. How, how big are the dragons? They vary in size, and that's the really cool thing. The varying size of the dragons have different roles, but essentially they function like airships. Your smaller dragons are your scouts that protect your larger dragons, which act as your bombers. But the whole cool thing is, is there is an essentially a ship's crew on the back of these dragons with cannons and muskets and bombs that fight it out in the air as well as on the ground. And it adds this whole new level of combat to a really fascinating period of history. Well, I know that uh, you and me, but to a lesser extent, but I still do, enjoy uh, stories where it's take an important historical event and then just add like one supernatural or fantasy element. What yeah. was that? Uh, what was that animation you really liked a few years back? That was World War One. Oh, uh, War of the Worlds. Something I can't I know remember. That it wasn't very popular, but I remember you said you just like sent me a message like Teddy Roosevelt operating a mech cannon. Like, what more do you yes, want? Yes, it is Teddy Roosevelt riding a giant mech, wielding a machine gun, yelling "bully." <laughs> Anyway, anyway, go on with uh, your Hermetic's yeah. Dragon, Dragon Corps, airships, got it, got it. And it's still, it follows the history of the Napoleonic War at this point. And it's a great introduction because, you know, now this guy has gone from being a ship captain to having to be a dragon captain. Does he ride one? Yeah, he rides, well, essentially, there he rides and controls while issuing commands to the rest of his crew. Because okay, there's a I top deck and a bottom gantry, essentially. I'm just imagining an aircraft carrier, but instead it's like a bunch of gold everywhere because those are the dragon nests. So, uh, Imagine, you know, your standard European dragon. Mm -hmm. The top half has a wooden decking with mast and rigging on it. Uh, the bottom half 
is a chain link mesh, and the whole dragon is armored more or less in the vulnerable spots. And the top half, you know, crew, they're spotting, they're firing guns, the bottom crew is dropping bombs, and the captain is piloting the dragon in his group of other dragons. Wait, wait, so are we talking, like, smog size, then? The, his dragon is. It's up there with the smog size. Right, because that'd be the one that you have multiple people riding it. Yes, so. and that's the really cool thing, is there's all these various sized dragons, but there's not a lot of these bigger dragons. Also, he becomes central to the role. Uh, also, I only ask this because I've got one friend who'll kick me if I don't ask it, but when you say dragons, because the draconic family, right, has many different uh, subsects, um, are we talking four limbs and wings, or two legs and arms that are the wings? Or it's only a dragon if it's got four legs and a wing, otherwise it's a wyvern. Or a drake, but, which yes. has no wings, but uh, sure, I agree with you. I just wanted to double check. These are legitimate, you know, dragon dragons. So... It's really interesting because he's now, he is super important to this war because he has one of the few big dragons. France has a, has a much larger contingent of dragons than, you know, England does. And the other thing is there's this really interesting class disparity almost. It's because before he was a ship's captain. And in Britain, that was a big, you know, well-to-do position. But if you are a dragon captain, it's kind of looked down upon. There, you can't really rise through the ranks in this. It's... You know, you're locked in for life, Wait, and you're not dragon make a lot of captains money. are looked down on for being able yeah, to even ride a dragon. Yeah, it's a really weird kind of thing. What's the? Is there a justification given for such a prejudice? I mean, okay, prejudice by nature isn't justified. I accept that, but I like, think the justification that they go with is, you know, naval ships have been around for so much longer, and has been this, you know, it's the gentlemanly style of warfare. Mm. Okay. And dragons are not considered that category. I think I would wave my sword at them and say, stick it. Yeah, but uh, it even goes into some really interesting back history with the Byzantines having whole fleets of these dragons. And that's how the Byzantine Empire lasted so long. Oh, wait, then I, uh, so this comes back to a question I was about to ask. So when that first dragon egg is f uh, found, are you saying that before that, like there weren't dragons in the world, but there were at some point in history? No, there were, but there were very few because for whatever reason, the dragon sources become less and less with China being the number one exporter of dragons. <laughs> All right. So they are the super weapon that is not as prevalent now as it was before. And why this, I think, would work as a great movie is because this book is essentially, you are introduced to this character who knows nothing about the whole core of the dragon core, has to learn about it and learn all these things. And it's this great little, you know, as the character moves along, and learns more, you, the audience, learn more. And it's also a great adaptation because so much of the book is training and learning combat that you could easily translate that to a quick montage scene. You don't need all that stuff. There's a couple big moments to cover, but it's very easy to adapt and streamline into a movie. So I think you've already answered it, but uh, just for funsies, how do you keep this adaptation from being Sifi's Dragon Wars? Oh, um, first off, you get... Okay, the effects are actually pretty good on that. Yeah. But uh, the way, best way to do it, and the biggest problem with the Dragon Wars, is you have... There are several scenes of really intense dragon-on-dragon -dragon combat and dragon-on-dragon-on-ground-landing combat. I mean, there's this huge battle at the end where Napoleon is invading Great Britain through a combination of dragons and his uh, Grand Army of the Republic that really sees this fresh captain put to the test. And I think 
the concept alone of Napoleonic warfare, but with dragons itself would just be so cool to see up there on the screen. It's something mm -hmm. we haven't seen before. And this is part of a larger series, but you could take this just as its own little thing, its own little snapshot, have it be a single movie, and it would stand on its own. Or if you wanted to expand and go into the, se uh, the sequels, you've got a franchise, a series. But the way it's written is, you know, you could only you could do one movie and be perfectly fine. Just and just for aesthetic reasons, do they have sea dragons too? Uh, not really. This dragon is more of an aquatic type. Like, it's a, I think it's a Grand Imperial dragon, which means they tend to dwell near water more. But that's the other thing, is there are tons of unique dragon designs. There's different sizes, there's different types. So visually, this could be a really unique movie. And I think if you can get a director with a really good visual flair and a real love of both, you know, history and this fantasy element, this would be a fantastic looking movie. It also sounds I, like a visually expensive movie. But, uh, oh, it would not be cheap. But this is the one scene I will pitch to sell this movie. Imagine, you know, you've got this great scene of the two army, you got the British army and the French army marching towards each other. You've got the whistling of the cannonballs, you've got the cracking of the shots, you've got smoke, and all of a sudden you have this bellow, and the camera pans up, and here comes this massive dragon barreling down over the line, breathing fire and dropping bombs with guys, you know, falling off, you know, firing, getting shot, falling off the sides, and then it pans open, and you see this giant air battle going on. I mean, it wouldn't be cheap, but it would be amazing. I mean, Lord of the Rings level of fan <laughs> high fantasy awesome. Well, I do remember that the one part of that, there, there were like two parts of that Dragon Wars movie that were all right, and one of them was dragons fighting helicopters. <laughs> that put us And the place. opening. That opening was pretty good. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. So imagine that opening, but scaled up and made more interesting. And yeah, get a proper budget behind it, I suppose. Uh, who would you want to direct it? Uh... Because I'm going to tell you right now, that pitch that you just gave to me, I'm thinking Del Toro. Yeah, I want to say Del Toro because this he has a love of the fantasy. My only thing Give is, it the Pacific Rim treatment. <laughs> that's true. I have my other things. Pacific Rim is the only one he's done on that scale. Uh, okay, sure, sure. The huge budget. I mean, but yeah, I'd, Del Toro, but I will suggest Del Toro every time if you're like, okay, we got a high fantasy, <laughs> it's got a really cool visual, it's Del Toro, but no, don't, don't just give it to Del Toro. That man well, needs more movies. At some point, me and you are going to discuss, I came up with the hypothetical question of um, you kill everyone in Hollywood, well, not you personally, but everyone in Hollywood dies, you get to save five directors. It's not just your favorite, it's these are going to affect what the new Hollywood looks like. Who do you choose? At some point, we're going to have this discussion because I've had it with a few friends and it's pretty fun. Yeah, that'd be a good one. Anyway, but so my choice to discuss a, uh, a book series, but I'll go with an individual book for now that I think would make a great movie, really because they kind of already have done it pseudo, is Galactic Patrol by E.E. E. Doc Smith. Now, this book was written back in, I think, 33. And E.E. E. Doc Smith was a PhD. Um, well, he was a PhD in games at the moment. because I, I want to say he had a degree in engineering, but he also had a degree in, like, uh, psychology or something like that i don't remember which was which but point is galactic patrol is one of those things that like when you read it you can suddenly see its influence on tons of other things because it was basically star wars in the 1930s <laughs> so. yeah I've, I, I've we've talked about this and i've tried to read it and it is essentially the grandfather of so many sci-fi ideas 
Yeah, I mean, the main problem reading it is because it's written by a guy who is extremely technical. So he does the Stephen King thing where he spends like pages describing something. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really dry. I've tried to read it. Yeah. It was where Stephen dry. King does it to describe like a town or an idyllic sitting. E. Doc Smith does it to describe like a technology that allows you to move planets or something like that, which is really only interesting if you're like a tech nerd like me. But yeah. he does manage to, yeah, so it's very dry. In the future, there is Hold a up. planet. Awesome. Oh, I also want to say that anyone who's a Green Lantern fan will see the most resemblance. Green Lantern uh, writers, the original Green Lantern writers, are the Silver Age ones, actually, I think, were huge fans of the Galactic Patrol. So they took a lot of the even words and names and applied them to Green Lantern characters. So anyway, in the future, there is an, uh, an alien race called the Arisians. They're sentient races. And they offered them what's called the lens, which imagine it's like a kind of like a glass badge that you pin to yourself. It's more than that. But we'll get to that in a second. Um, only something like five out of 60 million individuals are worthy enough to uh, to use a lens. So the you know early on in the book, the main character, uh, Sam, uh, I always mix up his name, uh, Kimball, I think. Anyway, let's call him Kimball. Uh, so Kimball. Like he describes going through the training, and uh, you know the it's not like super detailed because this isn't really a military book. This is this is like a pure space opera. Yeah. Uh, so he talks about going through the training, and once he's accepted him and the other like four people in that year, they are all told, okay, here's the coordinates for the planet you can go to to get your lens because they all have to go meet with the Arisians, who then forge essentially a lens for them personally. Now what the lens does is it gives them a certain amount of psychic power. So basically think of like, you know, Jedi mind tricks and stuff like that. But it also, more importantly, allows universal communication. So a lensman can communicate with any species, like no matter what, which is super important because a lot of this, the aliens described in Galactic Patrol are not humanoid. <laughs> There's one species that are basically Martians, and uh, that they come from Mars, but they're described as being like, imagine a purple soup can with a upside down fishbowl on top of it. That fishbowl has five black orifices, and then on the sides, imagine a bunch of tentacles. That sounds terrifying. And like it yeah. belongs in an anime. <laughs> but it has no no mouth. Those orifices don't function as like a mouth, so they don't actually speak. Oh. Only only the lensmen can speak to them. And there are those creatures, there are lensmen of those creatures, because they're perfectly sentient. There's a species at one point that is described as being essentially a tire with arms. So, uh, there's a lot of creativity in there, and it also is literally about space pirates. And, and he doesn't pussyfoot around with terminology. They are straight up called space pirates. And uh, Kimball, as a new lensman, is essentially most of that first book is just about him infiltrating the base of uh, a high, like, ranking space pirate and taking it down. There's a lot of, like, other under-the-hood stuff going on, because it turns out that the Arisians are one half of a uh, millennia, more than that, like an eons-long war between two planets, the other one being called Edor. And Edor essentially are the puppet masters for this pirate empire so the Arisians are essentially uh backing the lensmen while the edor adorians are backing the pirates and, and a lot of times quote-unquote possessing the pirates because the Arisians and the edor are kind of like beyond regular form anyway it gets pretty metaphysical but 
So all that stuff's going in the background. So you got this huge, like behind the scenes, like epic scale thing going on. And then you have the fun, again, it's, it's very pulp, but a uh, fun story of just this essentially space cop with psychic powers taking down space pirates. So See, that sounds good, but there's a couple big problems I can already see. One, how do you even begin to adapt that? Where do you start with that? Because that was a that's a lot of stuff people to take in. How do you start? I mean, this is one of the, our uh, criticisms was leveled at Lord of the Rings for the longest time. It's too big a world to introduce people to. Actually, I don't think it is. Like, I'm explaining all that because I want to get across that there's a lot going on under the surface. But Galactic Patrol is actually the 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 third book in the series, but it's always yeah. the first one. It was the first one written. He went back and wrote the prequels later. I think. I could be wrong about that. I know that I read Galactic Patrol first and then went back and read Triplanetary and uh, First Lensman uh, later. And there's seven books in the whole franchise. Or it's not a franchise series. But so if you want to introduce, I mean, because, okay, they tried to adapt it into an anime and it was terrible. Like that seems like it's a natural fit for an anime, though. It's, it's not. And... It really isn't, and it 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 needs a certain um, again. Just think like how you do Star Wars, and that's kind of how you do. It. Like Star Wars is just the hero's journey. It's very simple. One of the things that makes cult to uh, deal with uh, adapting wise is that Kimball, the main character, has already passed in a lot of ways his hero's journey. He's already a hero. Now it's just a matter of finding how best to apply his heroism. So the first movie, if I'm in charge, is basically just a really simple, fun movie about a space cop fighting space pirates. And you do the, the fifth element thing where you just have a bunch of like cool stuff in the background. Um, so that gets you like acclimated to the world. And then you have like two scenes, like the one where he meets the Arisians, that that hints at the much deeper mythology. And then like one at the end where you get like a clip of, uh, uh, you know, Edor or, or, or some like deep, that deeper stuff cuz but you don't you don't like throw that at the viewer the first time you just have the fun romp in space with space cop so you hook him and then you build on it all right the second problem and this is one i like to call the 40k conundrum because mm -hmm. this is the common problem people that are in the 40k deal with a lot is how do you sell people that you know no no this came before all that other stuff <laughs> this isn't ripping off that one because anyone that knows anything about 40k the first one you introduce someone to like oh it's like starcraft oh it's like gears of war no this came first that stuff came later you know i don't have a good response to that one i mean the best i could think is you sell uh, the idea of um a a fifth element slash valerian style world but with, Which is you're already kind of dealing with a handicap there. Yeah, but with a Star Wars style uh, story and epicness. So isn't that Valerian though? No, Valerian was a failure at that. Valerian was basically trying to be. I, like, I'm saying that's how it was pitched. Was Star Wars meets Fifth Element? I didn't get that. I just got it as Fifth Element again. <laughs> so yeah, more but, action. Okay, maybe there's better people at explaining it than me. Uh, like I said, I yeah, don't I mean, I can see that, it. But... It's just that would that's a tricky one to adapt. I mean, that's a tricky no. one to pitch. You want to know what's super tricky? And I'd actually like as cool as this is would be something I would take away from the book, even though I know or take away from the movie, even though I know fans of the book would hate it. There's a concept. So you find out in the not Galactic Patrol, but in the fourth book, which is called Gray Lensman, I believe that Kimball is one of the latest in a line of uh, specially chosen bred humans, essentially, and not by humans. It turns out that the Arisians, who you know give the lens, also seeded many of the planets that 
you know, spawn sentient life. And on Earth, they chose two uh, lines, two lines of genetics to always keep track of and to breed them with the right people to one day essentially create the ultimate weapon. Uh, so one of them is the Kinnison's which is like Kimball Kinnison, it's, it's him, right? Yeah. So his his line all the way back always had that last name because the Arisians made sure that that line was always alive. And the other is uh, doesn't have a last name because it's the essentially female side of this equation, it's, but always had uh, like red hair and brown eyes. Like they, there are certain genetic traits that can mark this line, but they kept these two. So Grey Lensman begins with just uh, like a few chapters of talking about certain times when the line almost got killed and like so like during the sacking of rome for instance or during world war one and where arisians basically kind of intervene to protect these lines and so I can, now I can, I can definitely see it's been a series there's some definite legs to it yeah and so now in gray lensman they finally connect the two lines after the entirety of human race like you know pushing them forward and then the the children that come from that line are beyond powerful like beyond all the Arisians combined kind of stuff like that causes a problem narratively because they become essentially gods <laughs> but uh yeah i was gonna say you're getting dangerously close to master race talk yeah no i i understand again this is the 1930s but yeah, i know and, they didn't have that problem yet but i mean you're inevitably going to if anybody you cast in this depth this storyline is saying now this race this is the best race of all races right here <laughs> No, I totally Which, agree. That's, uh, ooh, that's I'd love I to see the director look at that one. Yeah, we're 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 not doing that. No, just just no. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Of, uh, that's the screenwriting that's... for it when they had that one scene. Like, we're not doing that. Just no. Yeah, no, I agree. That's why I said I'm bringing it up because, like, in the book, it's super interesting because you can kind of imagine you know Kimball like any way you want to, and it's a great concept that they seeded the ra- or they seeded the planet, and they've always kept this line going. And there's whatever justifications you want, but yeah, it would be super uncomfortable in a movie form which is too bad though because like you know scenes of like seeing them kind of intervene with old history could be super interesting i think you could adapt it but you'd have to tread carefully i I agree i just think that galactic patrol as again it's it's actually influenced so many things the lensmen are jedi (laughs) yeah jedi green lantern Corps. uh yeah, literally, there's a, there are characters in Green Lantern called Arisia and Edor that are named directly after those planets. So, so it's like... I guess the big question is, who directs this jumbled mess? I mean, who do you well, think... Right now, uh, the guy trying is Ron Howard, which I'm very... I iffy. don't think Ron Howard has the skill to do it. He's been trying to get his hands on it since like 2012. I like him as a director, but this does not seem like he's the right fit. Um, I would say James Gunn. Uh, that Guardians of the Galaxy dude? Yeah, you know, he's I, got I like the pulp. No, okay, that's true enough. Um, he did Guardians of the Galaxy, which was this just you know I was seriously like, there's no way you can take all this weird lore and make a coherent storyline out of it. You know, I wouldn't. I would be fine with James Gunn as like a sequel guy, but for the first movie, I feel like I need someone who is directing it more like a straight, more straight because it's not really funny. There is humor in it. But I feel like Gunn might, you know, lean it a bit too comical. <laughs> so, like, I, I would think someone like, um, as much as this is kind of hurts me to say, I might say someone like uh, Cameron, James Cameron. So, ah, uh, Cameron could do. I would also say maybe Luke Besson if you could rein him in a bit. Is that the Fifth Element guy? Yeah. Uh, like I said, Valerian would be really angry, but yeah. If I, you could rein him in, it would really come down to you know keeping him on point, on focus. 
yeah, you know, as far as directing, like I goes, I would agree with that. But yeah, you need uh, definitely much better writers for the actual adaptation part. So no, he gets to direct. You get a separate set of writers. <laughs> exactly, I, I can agree with that. So uh, let's wrap up by just talking about why adaptations of books so rarely work. I mean, even with the best intentions. Um, I think a big part of the issue is scale because books can be any length they want to be. As long as your story is still interesting, people will keep reading it. True. Movies are kind of capped at hour and a half, two hour mark. Mm -hmm. You can't really go on and on and on and on. Well, you can't, but only people who are like pretty dedicated are going to do it. I, I learned that lesson when I tried to show Watchmen the extended version to someone for the first time before showing them the theater version. So. Yeah, and well, there's also the financial problem. You can't have a four-hour movie because that will not provide enough showings to make a profit. True. So that's the big hampering. The other issue is, and I think this happens, is so rarely do you get a director that is passionate about the source material making that movie. Although you want to be careful with that, because I mean, uh, Travolta was, if anything, passionate about Battlefield Earth, and I feel like his his passionate adoration of it blinded him to what was wrong with it. Exactly, and that's the other side of the spectrum. Or you get someone that's too in love with this that can't see the flaws. It's a really tricky balancing act. Like uh, Stephen King books, I think are a great example. I mean, they are notoriously bad adaptations. Well, I think and because... People... Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I think a lot of that... It, I mean, okay, there's a lot of reasons Stephen King adaptations can go bad, but I think one of the most interesting ones is that Stephen King, as we established earlier, is the guy when it comes to ex- detailing something. Like, he'll spend... You know, he wakes up every morning, I remember reading sometime, and always writes 30 pages every morning. Yeah, so while he's... he has so many books written and ready to publish that they keep them on backlog to keep from flooding the market. Yeah, so like while Stephen King is good at writing, he's great at writing a lot. I didn't come up with that. I stole that from Bob Chipman, but it's totally true. Yeah. Uh, so like he'll just go on for like pages and pages describing in great detail what and building a, a tree looks like, right? So and in and in a book form that sounds insufferable, but he does it in a way that is like that's what draws you in a lot of times. Yes, it's fascinating. You, and it makes that horror work because you feel this world. You are totally immersed in this world. So when the thing pops out and goes, ooga booga booga, you freak out like the character freaks out because you're in this world now. Yeah, but it's really hard to do that in a, a visual medium because like, you can do that 30 pages in a five-second establishing shot. Yeah, there's not that time for world building, which I think is the other problem of why books and movies are so hard, is books are primarily world building. Uh, Most of the time, yeah, sure. You're creating that environment, you're setting up, you're drawing people in, and you can't do that as well with a single movie, which is why TV show adaptations typically work better, is you have an unlimited amount of time to build this world and expand on this world and expand on these characters. You're not having that time cap, which is why I think so many book to TV shows have worked, while so many book to movies have just outright failed. I mean, what the episode one? It's funny because Game of Thrones is the go-to example, right? And episode yeah. one of Game of Thrones feels both like a lot happens and also like nothing happens. Yeah, spend so much time having people talk to each other about you know what they're feeling. Which I mean, the best part of that entire episode is just Tyrion and Jon Snow talking about what it means to be an outcast. So. Yeah. And that's actually why I say I like this show better than the book, is while the books are good, don't get me wrong, the show has a way of cutting to the important stuff quicker. 
Okay, we can come back to that, but uh, I, I want to say... We will say, have a full discussion, but that is my defense of why I say that the books... I like this show better than the books. Yeah, and I actually, to an extent, agree with you. Uh, but I want to say, like, so we were talking about, you know, books ad- adapting. That, that, that thing I was talking about with Stephen King. Um, so a lot of people who try to adapt then, uh, they focus on the, the plot details and don't, like, I think devote the time they need to to what makes Stephen King writing work. So you need a director who, and in this case, I really do think the director is more important than the writer. The, and yeah. not, not, not Stephen King, the writer, the adaptation writer. I Just mean, in general, yeah. Yeah, because you need to be able to convey visually those pages of words and not just like the details, but the feeling they uh, convey. So that then has choices like lighting and lens angle and stuff like that. And if you can't, I mean, the, it was my favorite movie last year and just like little things like how the, the fricking door with the burned hands, like just the, the, sh- the quickness of it, but the, the angle he's looking up at it and how it builds up to it like that is how you direct a scene that conveys what I feel like is Stephen King writing. So Yeah, Stephen King, he's tricky. And again, and for me, it comes back to the amount of time you're given, which is why I, I the books that I, the book I listed, I think it works because it's written in a way that you can remove parts and streamline parts. And the world's already kind of pre-built for you because we have the Napoleonic War. You don't have to build that one past what the history books have already done. You have a big scroll of dialogue at the beginning, and boom, you're there. You introduce the dragons as a surprise. Um, but and I'm not saying it can't work. Lord of the Rings technically shouldn't have worked. Well, I mean, it was called the unfilmable book for early yeah. film series for a long time. So it really shouldn't have worked, but that is one of my favorite movie trilogies of all time. So you every know, once in a while you get lucky. Yeah. You know what I think is more interesting? Uh in regards to so so Lord of the Rings was considered unfilmable because of like the amount of detail that Tolkien puts in his books and you know being able to fit that in the movies. And they managed to or Peter Jackson managed to do it. Uh, I think a great example of something that's difficult to adapt because of how easy it is to mess up is voiceover. Because books, so yeah. many books are first person. You're in the the mind of your protagonist. Or even if they're third person, you're still hearing the thoughts of uh-huh. protagonist and voiceover is one of the most cliche uh movie and tv show things at this point right yeah so when it works it's because you have a character it's because you have writers who give him the who write things to say essentially and, a, and an actor whose charisma works really well i mean one of the reason why dexter season one only is uh like that season is one of my favorite seasons of television period is because not only is the, the what michael c hall gets to say so great but his delivery is so bought on and that's why like w- one of my favorite books that had an adaptation that i don't like uh odd thomas uh well really any of the the Tom- odd thomas books I'm, I'm actually a big dean coons fan but that book those books all survive off uh dean coons's clever writing for odd the character who is super enjoyable. And while Anton Yelchin is great in the role when he's playing off people, his voiceover, or largely lack thereof, is very flat in that movie. Yeah, it's a tricky thing. How do, when your books are such an integral part of what's going on inside this person's head, how do you translate? I I, I honestly don't, don't have an answer. How do you translate that? I mean, some have gotten away with they have other characters express that dialogue for them or they have facial expressions or they use something subtle like that. 
I will tell you though, if your movie has Elvis Presley as a main character, you don't, or your book has Elvis Presley as a main character, you don't cut him from the movie. <sighs> Bless you. Yeah. Uh, Alright, go on. I just I had to get that off my chest. So no, I understand. The answer to your question is I <laughs> I got nothing. Um I mean one of our favorite books that we always said would make a good movie, we thought, was uh Oh, I'm blanking on it right now. American Neil Gaiman. Gods. <laughs> no, that would make a good movie, but Neil Gaiman, Terry Pratchett, Good Omens. Oh good omens. Sure, sure. We always said that would make a good movie. Because it's well, simple it'd enough. make a really enjoyable movie, certainly. Yeah, it's simple enough to be translated. And it's getting a series, which I don't feel it needs. Uh, yeah, but I like the idea of being able to spend more time with the Four Horsemen. Like, that alone uh, is exciting. I don't know. And, again, American Gods is another one I think would have been a better movie than a show. But we will talk about American Gods when the second season rolls around a bit closer, because we Can have we- mixed... Thoughts Can we at one. least say though, like what problems you that you do have and what I do have aren't related to the episodes that are largely vignettes? No, that's a good part. It's yeah. the stuff they add that doesn't work for me. Yeah, but I mean, like for instance, the the episode dealing with the Irish lass coming to America that's almost like straight from the chapter in the book, uh, like that's that was amazing. I thought that so. was. So it's really a tricky thing. I mean, we don't have a good answer on. This is what you can do to guarantee you're going to have a good adaptation. This well, you really is what can't guarantee. Yeah, you really can't guarantee anything ever. It's just that it's a matter of like understanding your material, having both people who love it, but also under. I think an important thing: if you have people who are too obsessed with the material but don't uh, have enough like objectivity and understanding of how movies work, that's how you get the accountants in the room. Then that's yeah. how you get something like uh, Aragon, right? So, oh, I yeah, I was about to ask what is the in your opinion one of the worst most painful adaptations and Aragon, yeah, that was a real bad one for me. I would definitely say it's top of my list for worst book to movie adaptation. <laughs> I didn't actually read it, but I've got several friends who are huge fans of the books and I've listened to many a rant. Of it, so. I don't get so much angry about it is it's like from top to bottom it doesn't work, including the fact that it's meant to be a series, but they chopped off the legs of the of the you know, and this is how it leads to the next book mm. and they made the dwarves all like five foot four, five foot six, and they didn't give the elves pointy ears, and these are just basic mistakes i I do really like though that so the existence of it, I think uh, the the new movie is mm-hmm. a good example of because you know a, a, a common thing with book adaptations is, oh, you cut this out, you cut this out, right? And it, it was like, you know what? We're going to cut out half the entire book. <laughs> and that actually made it better because then they can just like focus and use their time wisely without like being bloated. And they're like, don't worry, we'll get to that stuff. We'll just get and to it later. You already made the point with Battlefield Earth. Sometimes you have to split the book. True enough. But it's if like, you if you're going to split that, the book, at least reference what you're going to come back to. Yeah, if you can't do that six-hour epic, it's okay. Break it into smaller chunks. But don't do a Hobbit, where you, you know, take a one, two-book epic and make it into a three-book epic. I have heard that there are fans who have basically chopped together those three movies into two movies, and apparently it uh, makes it flow a lot better. I'm sure it'll flow a lot better, but it is still, and I'm making more enemies, a god-awful movie. And do you know why? There was no passion. Yeah, sure. I, I was fine with it, but I'm not I like, got progressively angrier. <laughs> I have movies like that. Uh, I don't know. I, I did miss certainly practical effects. Everyone always has. You gotta take a chance to kick the Hobbit a bit, but uh, and I 
and I like Martin Freeman a lot. But yeah, sure. I mean, it was a, a pretty hollow movie. I remember seeing a comment about um, uh, Sir Ian McKellen, like in a green screen room alone and he like broke down crying i guess and yeah he said like i didn't get an acting for this and i told that to one of my a-hole friends and he was like he's an actor he should do what he needs to act and i was like okay yeah but still that's pretty sad <laughs> yeah that's that's a statement in of itself but we're getting off topic so let's move on to our suggestions of the week what do you got for us Oh, <laughs> well, nothing particularly specific. I mean, right now, so I've got a, um, a friend of mine. Uh, it's basically my uh, my sister's husband. He just moved to, to the town I'm in to work at the same company as me, actually. And he's been getting me excited for months about doing a tabletop campaign. So I've been looking into various tabletop. This one will be a, uh, a Dungeons and Dragons fifth edition, but I'm also looking into doing like a Call of Cthulhu uh, thing. And there's a supers campaign that a friend of mine's involved. Point is, I've been getting really into tabletop stuff recently, like just role playing in general. So I've been watching a lot of the uh, various podcasts and shows online that do with that, like Dragons in Places, which is the uh, the Game Grumps doing D and D. It was like nine episodes. Really good stuff. Uh, Harmontown, obviously, which kind of got me into it. And Harmon Quest, their actual D&D show, which has like animated bits, which is really fun. Right now, I'm really into uh, Dice Camera Action, which is actually the, for lack of a better term, official D&D campaign because it's run by Wizards of the Coast, who own D&D. Yeah. Uh, Dungeon Mastered by Chris Perkins, the guy who wrote, um, well, he not alone, he had a team, but the guy who yeah. like, led the team that wrote Curse of Strahd. And it's got, you know, Commander Holly and Pro Jared and Nate wants to battle and it's just really fun stuff. I just started the Unexpectables, which is one of the like Team Four Star adjacent D and D ones. Anyway, all of these are good stuff if you're at all into you know tabletop games. Yeah, no, I I've my wife and I we've tried D and D on multiple occasions and it always ends the same way. The one hardcore D and Der gets mad that nobody's playing right and leaves. So I have put not a, he's not playing right then. <laughs> I have put a permaban on D and D as much fun as it is to play. I am so tired of my characters, you know, just getting really into them, having some fun, and then all of a sudden it's no more. Well, I'll tell you, man. I'm looking into learning how. To, I've had like four different people tell me I would be a good dungeon master, and I don't know what they see in me. But uh, I'm going to start reading like dungeon master stuff myself, and just saying, if you wanted to run something with uh, with me as dungeon master and a very controlled group of people where that won't happen, just a thought. Yeah, I have heard about D and D Discord, which I think is a great idea because that's the other problem a lot of people have with tabletop games, especially role playing ones, is it's hard to get a group of people together in one place for you know. Well, it's on very a it's very feast or famine. Either it's hard to find people to play, or you have way too many people to play. Like, yeah. I feel like the average DM can't handle more than five players max, and it's much better off with four. Yeah, I'd say that's about even. how it should so. be. But yeah, uh, as for my suggestion of the week, it's a fantastic book series I picked up, again, uh, totally random, uh, titled After It Happened. And it's a post-apocalyptic book series set in England, which is an interesting change of surroundings. Um, Lots of interesting words, like apparently the trunk is called a boot. I don't know what they call their boots, (laughs) but the English make up words as they go along. And it's really Americans don't. (laughs) We won the war that says we get to make the words. (laughs) There's problems with that, but you go ahead. We won the Revolutionary War and the War of 1812. We get to claim English as our own. 
you know, that's kind of a funny stance. Uh, uh, we'll come back to that at some point. <laughs> so there's all sorts of, you know, that's, it's an interesting culture change. But the best part is, is the trigger of the apocalypse wasn't zombies. It wasn't the end of the world. It was a, it was a flu virus that got out of control. Well, the flu influenza does kill a lot more people than most of these, like, you know, scare tactic diseases each year. So Yeah. And so there's a handful of people, and it's basically the most interesting part of any post-apocalyptic uh, series is trying to figure out how you're going to rebuild and the issues that come up with that. And I've only read the first two books. I'm under the third book now. But the first book is, you know, them just trying to adapt in a world where we've lost everything. How does society psychologically handle that? And how do we keep from going crazy? And then the second book is, okay, now that we have a workable society. What's going to happen with other people? Which is always the problem I have with these post-apocalyptic, you know, series is they kind of dance around the fact that, you know, run into a few Mad Max types. This hmm. book series does not. It goes straight in. They've already encountered three separate kingdoms. One is a kingdom of uh, favors. Another kingdom is a has a king of Wales who is an implied pedophile who has an army of uh, young boys. Ugh. And the third kingdom is one that is using mentally unstable, violently ill people as weapons. Well, doesn't this just sound pleasant? Well, I'm a bit of a Machiavellian in that, you know, you take away the societal structure and the confines, people are going to get savage fast. Did you? And it... I'm sorry, did you? Um, I know I've tried to get you into before, but how much of Star Trek did you actually watch? I've watched uh, Next Generation and a bit of the old school ones, but that's okay. about as far as I've ever okay. gotten. Okay, then I just want to say that uh, there's a great, and I know it's not really related to anything we're talking about, but it's a fun fact. There's a great episode of DS9 where humans are at war with the Dominion, or the Federation's at war with the Dominion, and Quark, who's a Ferengi, that's the money-loving people, his nephew is in the Federation, and he's all like, yeah, you know, these soldiers, they're heroes and stuff. And Quark has this speech, which you should, I'll send you a link to it anyway. But he basically right. says, he basically says, "I love humans. They're a a lovely, wonderful people. But you take away their creature comforts, their hollow sweets, their you know synthahols, their artificial. <laughs> you you deprive them of food, deprive them of water, and they become as mean and nasty as any Klingon. It's just a great like yeah. scene." Yeah, and that's very much what this book touches on, is, you know, they make no qualms about it. It's like, yeah, we're good people, but that's because we're trying. But there are plenty of people that just were waiting for this opportunity. And it's really interesting in that it's also very realistic. And again, it's character-focused. Always a good it's thing. about how these people interact with each other, how they are dealing with this new world, and the difficulty of creating this new society. And it's really interesting, but it really makes me kind of feel bad because I'm reading this and yeah, if this were me, I'm one of the uh, despot kings, you know, creating a warrior nation over in the corner to conquer all of England. New Sparta, which we'll talk exactly. about at length sometime. Yes, this is how New Sparta gets started. So uh, thank you for listening. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe. Uh, please leave a comment down below if there's something you'd like to hear in a future podcast. As always, this has been Lord Commander Ulrich. And his shield brother, Axel Wright. Be sure to tune in next time, and as always, stay honorable.